Please turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 7. We'll study verses 1 through 6. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Here there is a transition thematically within Paul's letter to the Romans. And friends, I do want to remind you uh, that the book of Romans is a pastoral letter. It's not a systematic theology. However, I guess if you were to give it a title other than the letter to the Romans from the Apostle Paul, you may call it Doctrine for Life. But here, there is a transition. And Paul is concerning himself specifically with Christians living in Christ and also those who struggle yet with sin. And so he writes this, these few verses, this transition from the section previous where he's answering the question of how does free grace then confront a sinful flesh. And then now we come again and Paul is concerned with the identity of the Christian. And so let us read God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he give us understanding. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Thus far the word of the Lord our God. Let's pray together. Lord God, you speak and the earth trembles. Lord, we have heard your word and we pray that you would bring us low, that we would sit under your holy scripture, not above it in judgment of it, but rather having your word penetrate us through as a light that shines into the darkness of our hearts to reveal to us our own waywardness. O Lord, pour out your mercy upon us this morning. O Lord, bring us into a closer walk with Christ. O Lord, help us to be a people united with him in body, in soul, in mind, and in affection. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Christian, who are you in Christ? 
And even whenever I ask that question, it can seem so obvious that it answers itself in a way. But friends, I want to encourage you that in a very practical way, our words and our actions and our lifestyles show that very often Christians struggle to know and to live as Christians. There's a famous hymn writer, you may well know of him, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. He thought on this question, Christian, who are you in Christ? And he answered, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this morning, as we turn in the text that Paul has written, he's written to the ancient church in Rome, and he's writing to us this morning, and he's helping us as Christians answer this question, who are we in Christ? And there are three things he points us to in the text of Scripture. I'm convinced that I can clearly show you these in the text. In verses 1 through 3, He asked us to know who you once were. To know who you once were. Then in verse 4, to know who you are now. To know who you are now. And then in verses 5 and 6, to know who you are to be. To know who you are to be. As we come to chapter 7, there is a contextual connection specifically to the previous chapter and in verse 14. So if you look back briefly to chapter 6, verse 14, we have Paul writing, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. And this is a loaded text, isn't it? It could be a very confusing text, and some Christians would read this and They would then think, well, the law has very little to do with me, almost nothing to do with me. Paul says, after all, I'm not under the law, but rather I am under grace. And here as we come to chapter 7, verse 1, Paul then takes up this idea again, law and the Christian. What has law to do with you? And there is essentially this single message that he's pressing to you, Friends, you need to know who you once were regarding the law. Before Christ, how you once related to the law. And he gives us this principle, and then he gives us an analogy. And that analogy is then applied in two verses. And so I want us to to take a moment to, to see this very clearly and to consider what Paul has Uh, to teach us from the text of Scripture. In verse 1, I want you to initially begin by taking note of this one fact, that he is speaking to Christians. Verse 7, or I'm sorry, chapter 7, verse 1, or do you not know brothers? He's speaking to Christians. Moreover, he continues on, he's speaking to Christians who know the law. So he's not just speaking in generality. He's not speaking uh, without specificity for you, Christians. He's speaking for everybody who themselves 
would be called a Christian. And he assumes a thing of us that if we are brothers, if we are in Christ, that we will know the law. It's just a simple assumption. In fact, the things that he's going to say in this principle he's about to give, he assumes it to be so broadly understood in the life of the church that it scarcely needs to even be said, yet he's willing to return to it again to give clarity for the Christian to know how then we should live. And here's the principle. That the law, verse 1, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. So let's break that down just a little bit. What is Paul emphasizing? Well, it's the role of the law over the person. And specifically, he's talking about the person before Christ. He's talking about the person who's not known him, the creature, the child that the Lord has created in his image and after his likeness that's living on this world, under the law, yet apart from Christ. And the relationship of the law to that person is qualified. It's not just an open association. Rather, he says that the law is binding. It is binding on that person. And that's the big emphasis that Paul is making, is that the person who lives apart from Christ has a relationship to the law that has legal weight, that it's serious, that it's something like chains or binding straps around the wrist and around the ankles. And You know, we've already seen Paul talk about the slavery of the person to sin and the relationship of the soul in slavish obedience to a life lived at odds with the word of God. But here he's specifically talking about our relationship that we once had with the law, that it is binding. Moreover, it's so binding that the only manner in which a person may be free from it is death. Somebody has to die. So that's the principle that Paul introduces. That the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. And then he gives us an illustration, this analogy, if you will, and it has to do specifically with marriage that a relationship for a person under the law, its binding power, its overarching authority, it's like a marriage agreement. And he gives in verses 2 and verse 3 this description of a woman who's married to a man. And you may say, well, that sounds fine enough. I understand that those are contractual and binding. If you've been to a wedding, if you've participated in a wedding yourself, you know that there's this thing called vows and that vows are holy promises and covenanting that you're accountable to. And usually there's this one little clause, till death do us part. Well, there's something of that that Paul's getting to in the text that we have. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies... She is released from the law of marriage. And that's quite plain. And whenever he states this, he expects that it's plain that people would really just take it for granted that you're married so long as you have a living spouse 
And whenever that spouse departs, whenever they die, that you're released from that bond, from the authority of those vows of marriage. You're no longer accountable for the things that you said you would perform for that other person. However, if that person is still living, you are bound to the things that you've said. You are accountable to the things that you promised to do. But you go on and we find out a little bit more about the marriage relationship, this uh, analogy that Paul makes use of. Sure, it's a marriage, but it's a marriage under fire. It's one in hot water. And this is more the true and the real outline of the person's life who lives under the law apart from Christ. Verse 3, he says, Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So what is he getting at? Well, he's saying this, that a person living apart from Christ under the law They're bound to it in authority to obey the statutes and the rules of the law and they are accountable to keep them and their consequences if you break them. That makes perfect sense. I think everybody in a general sense understands and especially if you live where we all live that if you break the law somebody's going to call you out on it. You're going to pay the debt of humiliation. You're going to pay the debt of a fine. You may pay the debt of a more serious punishment. It's a reality. But here he's talking about this situation within this image of marriage of a faithless wife. A wife with a wandering heart with an eye for another who then takes up residence with another. And I think Paul is touching on the character of the heart of every man, every woman, and every child apart from Christ and under the law. That you would generally say, well, it's okay. I'm not a rule breaker. I don't have a big issue of having that relationship to the law. But Paul says, hang on a second. Hang on a second. Maybe you actually do have a problem with this relationship if you are apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he holds for this real idea that ought to be directly applied to the heart of people who don't know the Lord Jesus and who have accountability to the law, and that is of faithlessness and wandering. You see, it's not just a marriage. It's a marriage under fire. And Paul is saying that a person living under the law and in this state, they have to understand that not only does the law have authority over them and that there are consequences, but that there is a faltering heart within us. And that the heart of an individual living under the law and apart from Christ, in essence, is bound to transgress that law and is bound to then take upon themselves a charge whether it's adultery or some other form of faithlessness. You see, that's a pretty hard image. It's not a happy image. But Paul's saying to us, we were bound. 
like marriage to the law. And it could demand and did demand things of us. And it also held consequences out to us. That if we transgressed it, we weren't free, yet we were condemned. And what is Paul saying? There's one way out of that terrible relationship, and it's death. Someone's got to die. That's his answer. If someone doesn't die, then there is no justice. If someone doesn't die, the law is not true. There is no punishment for the offense there committed. It is a significant thing. And so I press you again, Christians, to simply take a a look at this of who you once were. If you're in Christ Jesus today, this is not who you are. Your relationship to the law is not one that lords over you and says, here's the standard, live up to this or else. But that is who you once were. That absolutely is where you once were in relationship to the law of God. Here are the rules. You keep them perfectly or you pay the penalty. And if you don't pay the penalty, death is what will then be paid to you. It's significant. But Christian, it's not who you are now. And that's what Paul in verse 4 transitions to, this wonderful gospel truth. And he picks up and he continues loosely with this analogy. He says, likewise, verse 4, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Again, who's he talking to? His brothers. And let me also say, sisters, you're not here excluded. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who have faith, people who have known Christ and have experienced the wonder of His love and the redemptive work of His grace. And He says, brothers, you also have died. It's already a reality. You already have died to the law. The punishment that the law demanded of you for a faithless heart and a wandering eye All of that punishment and all of that accountability and all of that condemnation and all of that judgment has already been served. You've already died for it. Died according to the law. But how? Through the body of Christ. So what's he saying? Well, he's pointing us as Christians directly to the cross. And he's saying to us Christians, you are who you are now because Jesus died for you. And Christian, you're so united with him as we studied earlier in chapter 6. So united with him that it's not a wrong or a false thing to consider that you hung in him on the cross. To know and to simply be satisfied in this answer that the law's demands for your sins, all of that has been taken care of. The reality that someone had to die for the things that you've done absolutely has been true and has been taken out in the ounce of the flesh of Christ. The keen eye of God's judgment has drawn the arrow of punishment and he has aimed it at you And he has struck the heart of Jesus. 
You have died to the law, Paul says. You're released from that old marriage bond. It's it's broken. The law doesn't have authority over you to say, well, if you will live, you better match up. These are the ten things that you must keep. If you're to be righteous, if you're to be loved, if you're to be in fellowship and companionship with the God of heaven, here's what you've got to do. Here's the standard of living and life. Here's the only way of survival. Do this or die, Paul says. That's past tense. Christian, right now, you are free from that. And you're free, why? Because Jesus Christ hung for you. Your relationship has been put to death because of him. But that's not all that Paul tells you about who you are now. It's not just that you've died to the law, that its authority no longer is that which you are accounted by. But that now you belong to someone else. You belong to someone else. You're not just some sort of widower overwhelmed with sadness and grief. You're not just a bachelor back on the market after a really hard departure. No, no, no. You're in a wonderful relationship with a good and a kind Lord, husband, bridegroom who loves you and who gave himself for you. And this is such an important thing for you to hear, Christian. This is such an important thing that you have not been redeemed from the clutches and the accountability and the condemnation of the law according to your sin to then be free to do whatever you want like a free agent, like someone who's abandoned or like someone who is then set free uh, to ultimately then decide whatever they will or will not do. No, no, no. You're precious and you belong to him who was raised from the dead, you're Christ's. Christian, who are you in Christ? I want to tell you, you're his. You're his and he loves you. But I want us to think a little bit about what this means that, yes, we're no longer married to the weight and the authority of the law, so then what does this mean for us as the Christian? Well, I think that Heidelberg Catechism Question and answer one gives us a wonderful, wonderful description of this relationship to Christ and what this text means. I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. There's been a radical change, Christian. There's been a radical change so different that the household doesn't even have the same culture. 
No longer do you have a husband that looks down on you and says, you are not good enough. These are 15 ways you have not matched up. But you have a wonderful husband in Christ where you are his beloved and where he is good and where he cares for us and loves us, is attentive to us, has empathy for us, and he says simply to you and to me, all of the best that I have, all of my holiness that's yours. As if he takes his wonderful crown off his head and places it upon ours. The rings off his fingers and puts it on ours. The coat off of his back and puts it around us wonderfully to embrace us and to bless us. That what is his has become ours. There's no question of, oh, match up. But rather he says, I have done everything for you and it is yours freely to have and to enjoy. I love you and take it. And be blessed. You're mine. And I'm yours. That's who you are, Christian. That's who you are. And why does Paul have this great ark? We've already talked about the Christian playing with sin. So, where grace abounds, or where sin abounds, grace abounds so much more. What are we then to say? Shall we sin so that grace will abound? Absolutely not. And Paul is saying, don't you get it, friend? Everything has changed and you are in a new and a wonderful relationship that doesn't have demand upon demand upon demand put upon you, but rather offers to you gift upon gift upon gift and a world of grace, a fountain of love that never dries and is never overwhelmed by the great thirst that we have for its quenching mercy. It's not the same, Christian. You're not who you once were. You belong to Christ. And he belongs to you. Live holy and happy in union with Christ. That's Paul's word for us. If we continue on in verses 5 and 6, we get these two final verses where Paul sort of summarizes. This is a A thing Paul likes to do. You've seen it a couple times. We saw it uh, two weeks ago whenever I preached on the last portion of uh, chapter 6. Paul sort of summarizes and gives you sort of these two points in opposition. And that's what he does in these verses. Verses 5 and 6. And in verse 5 it's as if we're going back to review. And he talks about who we once were. He says, For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now that's sort of a strange thing, and I think we're returning also to the analogy of uh, the relationship of marriage. While we were living in the flesh, here Paul talking about the sinfulness of our condition While we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions or our sinful desires and delights, the things that we loved that were opposite to the character of God, he says that they were aroused by the law. As if seeing a beautiful um, spouse, a husband or a wife pass, and your passions are inflamed 
from you toward them, Paul is saying our sinful hearts treated the law like that. So you got to drill down into that for a second. You have to ask what Paul is saying, and he's saying really no less than this, that whenever we were in our sinful and unrepentant selves, that when we read the law of God, we, in essence, were then sparked to new ideas of how we might offend the God of heaven. That's a really startling thing. We've already seen Paul talk about this and touch upon how the sinful heart uses the law almost as if it is a a playbook for the offenses that we might commit against the Lord. And here he's doubling down on it once more that our hearts and sinful passions were aroused by the law at work in our members. Not only that our affections were perverse, but that we were acting those things out and bearing fruit for death. Something we mentioned two weeks ago as we studied the closing of chapter 6 is that the acts of sin and a life lived in obedience to sin, it does not give life. That's a general principle here. Death entered the world through sin, Paul is saying. Yes, that's totally true. But the thing that you and I need to hear as Christians is that no matter how many lies that we convince ourselves of, that Satan tempts us to believe or that the world would encourage us to participate in, that a sinful life lived in opposition to the scriptures will not fulfill you. It won't. It can't. It's a deadly attraction. You may think for a moment this relationship or that relationship or that person or this person that God has not given to you. Oh, that'll be fulfilling. I'll finally get what I've always wanted, what my wife, what my husband has never given. I'll be happy. I'll be fulfilled. I will live a life of utter and complete delight. Paul's saying that's not true. Paul's saying that's not true. That the wages of sin is death. That the things that accompany sin is death. It's broken households. It's pain. It's anguish. It's the offense of God. It's the destruction of the lives of children. It's the destruction of society. It's the destruction of profession. Ultimately, it is the self-destruction and condemnation that sinful people bring upon themselves. And here he is saying once more again, that's who you once were. A person laboring after your own demise with sin and sin again, bearing what fruit but the fruit of destruction, the fruit of death in your own life. And you may say, but pastor, didn't you tell me the third point is to know who you are to be? Absolutely. And so in verse 6, Paul transitions. Remember, I said there's contrast. And Paul does this so you can see this all the more clearly. You've seen the darkness of where you once were, and now you should see who you are to be in verse 6. But now we are released from the law. You're a free person according to your sin and according to the accountability that the law would hold over you. The law is not a directive for how you can be right with the Lord. You're free from that. And how is that possible? 
Well, Paul says it's because you died to what held you captive. That's all been done away with in the blood of Christ. The grace of Christ has paid the debt of the law for you. It's cut off your relationship. Whenever he groaned on the tree and the law extended its hand of punishment against him, you are no longer its captive because it punished him to death on your behalf. And so again, Christian, who are you to be? A free man, woman, or child unto Christ. Free in him to love him, to live for him. And then Paul characterizes this new life, this new style of living, this this thing that you are to be, with this wonderful phrase. He says, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code, or in the old way of the letter. What does he mean? Is he teaching some kind of ecstatic Pentecostalism, some sort of life of higher spirituality? I don't think so. I think Paul is speaking in agreement with the whole testimony of the Scriptures that when you are in Christ, you receive something, don't you? Of course you do. In fact, it's not even something, it's someone, don't you? A deposit guaranteeing your salvation. And who is that? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. There's nothing less than that. But it's not only that you receive the Holy Spirit as an indwelling person so that God is always with you, but that he is at work in you. Yes, he sanctifies your prayers and he utters in words that are too deep uh, for yourself and to the ears of the Father on your behalf. Absolutely the case. But friends, he's at work in you and giving you strength and helping you to have victory more and more over sin. And having a heart of sincerity so that now your life toward God, what is it to be? Well, it is to be one in the famous words of John Calvin where your heart is offered promptly and sincerely to God. Now that's a difference. It's really a huge difference. It is a life before the Lord bound upon love and on a life of devotion, having received love and then to give love back to him. It's a wonderful thing because what does Paul then do in the latter part? It's the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the letter. What's the difference? At one point and at one time, your life before God was simply looking at a list of rules and saying, I better keep them or I'll be very pained that I didn't. I better keep this letter. I better do it perfectly because if I don't, death is coming to me. And Paul is saying, Christian, the person you are to be is one who is free to love the God God of heaven, to be reconciled with him by the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus Christ. Your new life is one before the Lord, bound up on love for Christ and his love for you. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, whenever we are tempted to play around with sin, tempted to excuse our sins, tempted to think and to presume upon his grace that God is gracious, he loves me, 
His grace is so prolific that he will always forgive me for everything that I have ever done. While yes, it is true, God's grace is inexhaustible. That's not who you are. And that's also not who you're meant to be. You're meant to be a person living in love with the Lord of glory that he gave for you as a savior. And I charge you to that, Christians. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the scriptures, Lord, how you have shown us who you are in 66 books. Oh, Lord, we pray that as we've heard the reading and the preaching of your holy scriptures, Father, that you would grip our hearts. Oh, Lord, that you would take these things and press them to us and help us to live, oh, Lord, in obedience to Christ and in love for him. Oh, Father in heaven, be at work in us. Help us in every way to live in the new way of the Spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.